Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On today's show, we are joined by Professor Evan Stark, a forensic social worker and professor emeritus at Rutgers School of Public Administration and Affairs. Dr. Stark has served as an expert in more than 100 criminal and civil cases, including Nicholson v. Williams, a successful federal class action suit against New York City that made it unconstitutional to remove children from mothers solely because they had been victims of domestic violence. A founder of one of the first shelters for abused women in the United States, in the 1980s, Dr. Stark co-directed the Yale Trauma Studies with Dr. Anne Flitcraft, path-breaking research that was the first to document the significance of domestic violence for women's health. His seminal book, quote, Coercive Control, How Men Entrap Women in Personal Life, unquote, was named the 2007 best book in sociology and social work. We will be talking today with Evan about coercive control and its implications for policy and administration of reframing domestic violence as a liberty crime its implications for policy and practice change in the United States, and its effectiveness as a new law throughout the United Kingdom and elsewhere in Europe. So welcome, Evan. Thank you. I have to say before we get started that you're one of my heroes. So I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us because your book has been very influential in my life. And I just just want to make clear that's my book on coercive control. <laughs> yeah. I have other books, by the way. Yes, yes. We are going to definitely make sure that everybody reads it. It's a, it's a must read for anyone who's starting our podcast. It's not a library. <laughs> I, I think one of the reasons it's been so influential in my life is because it's really honored the complexity and the history of relationship violence and it's not elevated you know physical violence as our policies and practices do and so that kind of recognition was very meaningful to me and really transformed my thinking and my own work in advocacy so i want to start off just thanking you for that well and it's nice to hear you say that maybe that is a good place for us to start i have been working in fields as you know with women and children and men for many, many years before I wrote the book. And I think one of the things that I had done research with Ann Flitcraft, my wife and partner in crime, as it were, uh, for many years before I, this way of approaching things uh, struck me as, as the right way to go. And what happened was basically that as I was called on increasingly to work with women who had been charged with crimes, murder primarily, but not only, uh, committed in the context of an abusive relationship, I would begin to ask them questions about their lives, and they would begin to respond by describing moments in their abusive history which didn't involve name-calling or physical violence, but assertions of autonomy of agency, attempts by them to maybe get 
some dishes washed when they had two babies in their arms, get some help starting the car so they could get to work and bring in the income the family depended on. It might be a small thing like that, or it might be a bigger thing like making a life decision about whether to take a job or whether to have a new baby or whatever. Something that to them was a life change, but for their partner, for some reason, represented a threat, something that would take away from him what he believed was his privilege or the power that he had. It had nothing to do with physical violence. It had nothing to do with psychological abuse. It had merely to do with the normal process of living one's life as a free person in the presence of another person who, for some reason, found offense in the development of that kind of subjectivity. And I thought, well, you know, at these judges that were going before tomorrow, they've seen violence, they've seen black and blue marks, they've seen worse than my client has suffered even. Or even if they haven't, they're going to put that on a scale with the fact that one of my clients now, for example, took a hammer to her husband 29 times. And they're going to balance that 29 blows against the black moon walks that she suffered on Tuesday or last Saturday or maybe 13 years ago. And they're going to say, send her to jail. So I'm not going to present her that way. I'm not going to tell her story as the story of a victim who was abused. I'm going to tell her story the way she told it to me, as the story of a person who was trying to live a life as a free person with another person whom she may have cared for a great deal at one time in her life and presumably cared for her and who would not let her have that kind of dignity, that kind of personhood, that kind of autonomy, without which we can't be people in a free society. And so let's tell that story to the judge. And let's show the judge what you were like before this happened. Maybe you weren't well-educated or rich, but you were a person who was capable of becoming your own kind of your adult in whatever small ways that might have been. And now ask the judge to look at what this has made you do, how unnatural this act was for you. You've never committed a crime before, let alone a violent crime. Or maybe if you have, certainly not in this kind of way against someone you cared for. And let's ask the judge to imagine what someone must have done to you, to your dignity, to your equality, to your rights and liberties, to bring you so low that you are here before him today or to me. And that strategy was enormously effective, not only in winning few women their liberty and their freedom that they should have gotten to begin with, that any man would take for granted as a man if somebody tried to take away my freedom or my equality or my dignity and I struck up for that liberty and freedom. I wouldn't have to be put on the stand to prove my psychological victimization, that I had some kind of syndrome that caused me to crack and want to be a free person. I don't have to be crazy to be want to be free to defend myself in that way. I just have to be 
a normal person living in a democratic society with constitutional rights and liberties and find myself entrapped. So it was in that context, not only that we found that women's stories began to result in better verdicts, but also that women began to resonate with their stories in ways that they hadn't with the story that emphasized only their victimization. They took only their injuries as the prism which understand their life. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So, and that became the entree into looking around and finding out what people were saying about this. And that led to the theory, of course, of control and the elaboration of this as a broader sort of understanding. And I found that it resonated with the literature and the movement in human rights that was going on internationally among women who were trying to redefine violence against women worldwide, which had been heretofore described primarily in the context of rape during wartime. And they were expanding that definition. Governments were not supposed to be just to protect women from marauding armies or domestic forces let loose by marauding armies. But they also were responsible for the rights and abilities of their ordinary citizens in their private lives, in their personal lives. So that led me to write the book, and, and we can talk about the book, and we can talk about what led us to Europe and why the Europeans have grasped onto this. But I think the main chord that it struck was the notion that and you have to hear this, it's at the essence of this thing. If you start out with the presumption that women are equal persons, then these harms that we're describing in personal life become outrageous and intolerable harms in any society. And so what you've described is um, essentially the definition of coercive control. You've also mentioned that coercive control is a gendered crime. What, what do you mean by that? Well, it isn't. It isn't. Coercive control is just a generic term for a certain kind of dominant regime where the exercise of authority and can be in prisons, it can be in prison of war camps, it can be in cults, it can happen in all kinds of settings. You can have a situation where you have an exercise of authority which uses violence on one hand, psychological abuse, social isolation, fear and threats, all forms of manipulation and control, depriving you of food and water, money, um, all the things that we find in prison of war camps and relationships and cults. So course control can exist in any institutional setting, and it does in many settings. It also exists in any kind of relationship. You can have course control in same-sex relationships. You can have it in female-to-male relationships. Any relationship can be characterized by one party can dominate another, use violence, use manipulation, use control, all the techniques that we've identified with course for control, you can find there. So it's a generic term, and it's broadly found phenomena in society, just as violence is broadly found. Now, when I use the term course for control, I am specifically referring 
to its most devastating and widespread context, namely in male-to-female heterosexual relationships in personal life where there's an ongoing relationship, not necessarily where they're sharing a domicile, because as we'll, I'm sure, address in a moment, one of the amazingly sophisticated elements of coercive control is the way it allows the abusive party to extend their strategies across social space through surveillance, technology, stalking, and all kinds of mechanisms. So it doesn't depend on face-to-face contact or people living together. But the most pervasive kind of coercive control, the most devastating form it takes, is in these relationships, in heterosexual relationships. And the reason for that, I believe, is because of gender. That is, it is because women are pervasively vulnerable because of persistent inequalities that coercive control is possible. It is also, I believe, and this may be controversial to say, because women have gained so much that coercive control is necessary if men want to protect their privileges today. You see, the essential reason why men use coercive control it's because domestic violence is often ineffective. Domestic violence is illegal. Women can escape domestic violence. Women can earn a living today in most advanced societies. They can get a job. So you take their living. So you make sure that they don't get paid nearly as much as you do. You turn that disadvantage in earnings into a systemic advantage in power. Women can run for office. You turn their lack of full equality in the political realm into an advantage in terms of power and translate it down in the individual level. You cannot understand, and this is very difficult for people in our movement who have so long relied on the wealth of individual stories like your own story on which we've built our movement to understand how important it is that you cannot grapple with women's vulnerability as a class unless you grapple with women's situation as a class of inequality, gender inequality. It's that inequality that enters that home and determines what kinds of shares of power, of wealth, of ego are put on the table and take it off the table. So when men take women's money, it's because women have money that threatens them and because there is money there to take. Men take women's sexuality, either for themselves or for others to to use. It is because women's sexuality has become something that is available in that way. It's hard to grasp what I'm saying, but it's because women have come so far that they have threatened to undermine the fundamental basis for taking for granted male privilege. So just to clarify what you were saying, you made a distinction between coercive control as how you define it 
and domestic violence, which you say is being regulated and policed. So what is the difference yeah. between domestic violence well, and coercive if, control? If, if you were to ask me, I would say, look, this violence is widespread in relationships. We've known that for decades. Women use violence against men, men use violence against women, men use violence against men, women use violence against women, there's violence against transgender persons. There's all sorts of ways in which people use force in relationships. I won't say I'm not interested in that. I'm not saying it's not a pervasive social problem. I'm not saying it's good for children to grow up in homes where this occurs. It certainly may not be. But I will also tell you that sometimes violence is necessary in relationships where there's conflict in order to settle differences. Many of the people I work with have used violence very effectively in relationships and on the street, not necessarily to settle conflicts once and for all, but to make it clear where they stand in their lives. I'm not in favor of violence. I'm not saying it's good. I do believe that when one party considers himself a victim and reaches out for help, we need to provide that help. And if they reach out for police help and there has been assault, that person who has committed the assault ought to be punished. Whether that person is a male or a female or the victim is a female or a male, that punishment should be the same. I believe that. I want to say that. That is domestic violence. I wouldn't use the term domestic violence. I would just use the term assault. And I think it should be. Now, we do know that where there are domestic assaults and one party is more likely to be the victim than the other, that party tends to be female. We do know that there tends to be repeated violence in those relationships. And then there often is psychological abuse. Do we deal actively with that? No, not yet. We still should be more seriously concerned about the degree to which people can be, through violence and psychological abuse alone, made low. And we should punish those offenders, not just for simple assaults, but for what they call now in Scotland historical abuse, multiple assaults committed against the same individual, just as we would a sexual offender of children who committed multiple assaults against the same child or multiple assaults against different children. So that is domestic violence. It tends to be repeated. It can happen. It occurs by women as well as men, in, in gay as well as straight relationships against transgender persons. And we don't deal accurately enough with it, but we are dealing with it. Now, course control. 70 to 80% of the women that reach out to us, and what I mean by us is all of the range of services that we have created, study after study after study, at service points, at bad women's shelters, at refuges throughout Europe, people who call the police, people who come to seek protection orders, people who seek divorces. Surveys which have asked people about their lives have found that while physical violence is common, it is not alone. And I'll return to that in a moment and talk about the characteristics of the physical violence. It is almost always accompanied by some combination of the following. 
And it is that combination that taken together we consider coercive control. First, physical violence is accompanied almost always by some form of sexual coercion. It need not be rape, although in 40, 30, 40% of the cases there is rape. And like the physical violence, the sexual assaults tend to be repeated. But rape is only one point on a continuum of sexual coercion. The physical violence itself, our own research at Yale showed that, is sexual. If you look at the body map of where women are hit, the injuries tend to be in the breast, in the abdomen, in the mouth, those organs of the body, which for men symbolize the threatening sexual element of women's personality and being in the world. So the sexual coercion, and that is not being dealt with at all in the domestic violence world. It's as if the rape world and the domestic violence world lived in separate planets, in separate planets. I don't know when the last time I was in domestic violence court where I saw a rape charge filed. We have attrition rates in rape cases, even though we know that partners are far away, far away, the main culprits reported to the police in rape cases. We have attrition rates in police cases of 97% from reports of rapes where the partner is known as the offender to any conviction and sentence. So we have a domestic violence charge for a case that involves repeated physical violence, and we haven't even looked beyond that. We haven't opened the window yet to beyond looking at the rape and the sexual coercion. But we know now that in 40% of those cases, we also have a history of repeated sexual assaults and probably forms of sexual coercion beyond the sexual assault. Because the most insidious form of rape is rape as routine where he sexually assaults her the first time. One of my clients told me, never forget, he tied my hands behind my back right after we were married, and he had his way with me. I never said no to him again. Well, that's rape as routine. How many women are going to bed with men night after night after night because they're fearful of what will happen if they say no? That is as much a deprivation of their liberty right as any Me Too movement could establish in Hollywood, is it not? Mm. So, and that's just that angle. Now we move to the third element, of course, of control, which is the intimidation. Intimidation also runs the gamut from literal threats, which I'm sure we're all familiar with, threats to kill, threats to hurt the children, threats to hurt family members, very importantly, threats against pets, kicking the dog, threats against animals, threats against the neighbor's animals, shooting. One of my cases recently, she had never seen him actually hit the child, but she'd seen him shoot the neighbor's dog. That was admissible at the trial. And when she stabbed him to death, she had no violence. That was considered for her to testify about it. And even his, the wife that he had raped who was so far underground, so afraid of him, we had to use a prior detective to bring her to court. She wasn't allowed to testify because it was considered prejudicial to him. He was dead. Prejudicial. And she had only never seen him except once shoot the neighbor's dog. And that was enough because she knew any man who could shoot the neighbor's dog could kill a kid and kill her. 
And that was all she needed. And she was convicted because she accepted him and she admitted it. But she was acquitted by the Canadian Supreme Court. And Teresa Craig was her name. And they set her free from jail because they saw that a woman who was intimidated in that way, who was frightened in that way, should be let go. So intimidation starts with threats. And of course, the most insidious and popular form of intimidation that we're aware of is stalking. And it's only recently in Europe and now increasingly in the United States. First, we recognize most stalkers are known to the victim. Most stalkers are partners or formal partners. If you're being stalked, it's a high risk for homicide. There's a high correlation between stalking and physical violence. But most importantly, and something that isn't appreciated, most stalking begins when the relationship is still intact. In other words, he's not stalking her while they're separated. He's stalking her to keep her home, to find out where she is while he's with her, to follow her to work from the house, to follow her if she's going to the sewing club. One of my poor guys that I had in Friedman years ago, he followed his wife. He was sure the sewing class that she was going to was meeting another man. And he followed him one night without his headlights on, and he went down the ditch. And he came into my men's group with, you know, full body cast. Literally, what he regretted was he couldn't drive, but he had to admit to his friend why he was asking his friend to drive the car to follow his wife. Now, I mean, he still hadn't given that up. And that, that idea that she was really cheating on him. So, Stalking is very insidious, but perhaps the most unknown form of intimidation or the kind that's hardest to really get your handle on are the kinds that feel like love. Often when we ask women, what does he do when he really wants to frighten you? The things they tell us are things that you wouldn't think about because they're things that only he knows because of the privileged knowledge he has gained due to his intimacy with you. The knowledge he has of your brother's death so that if he really wants to hurt you, he points to the baseball cap that you have from your brother who drowned in Brazil. The one thing that you have, and he threatens to destroy that. He just has to point to it. And you're devastated. You'll do whatever he commands. I'm dealing with a case now, very high-profile case in uh, Google land. Let's say the man is very high up in the Google hierarchy. And he has this knowledge of his wife's weakness, the special knowledge of his wife's weakness, which he can use whatever he wants, a scar she got when she was young, an incident of child sexual abuse that she had, when she was living at home as a child, I wouldn't say more because it'll make the case to identify him. And he uses that, he pulls that out. So it's the piece of information that he has that may sound even like love. Darling, you're cold, here's your sweatshirt, and you can't pitch anymore, and only he knows, and only you know that he knows that the threat is that you'll have to cover up the light because he'll hit you. And if he never lays his hand on you that night, the simple offer of the sweatshirt is enough 
to let you know that you have done something to offend him, that the rule that you have made together, that you won't make me jealous. Of course, I get jealous whenever you're successful, whenever you stand out, whenever you become and flower as you, only you can do. And of course, that's why I love you to begin with when we put it together, but I don't want anyone else to see that. And therefore, I don't want you to show that anymore. And if you show it in public, I imagine others see it. And I imagine that they will simply take that even away from them. And after all, by now, I'm such a jerk. I'm such an asshole. I've been so awful for so many years. It's probably true that if anybody else does see you, if you're able to show yourself outside of the house, you'll be whisked away in a moment. So the intimidation that feels like love is often the most devastating kind. I want to address the violence part that you had mentioned earlier. In your critique about the current model of how domestic violence is defined, you critique using violence as a way to measure harm. Can you talk about that? When you take violence as a criteria, it's natural to do what the New York Police Department was doing informally when we set out to sue them 40 years ago, using what they called informally the 10-stitch rule. There was no rule, but as a matter of practicality, if you had a load of cases coming in every single hour of assault, you had to make some determination which was going to be taken more seriously. And obviously those cases which required 10 stitches were going to be taken more seriously than those cases that required none. Injury is a very good marker of violence normally because the more violence, the more likely a weapon has been used, the more likely there will be an injury. And the more serious the injury, the more serious the intent maybe of the harm and the more devastating the crime. It's what we call a calculus of harms. Now, it so happens that when you take a calculus bombs and you apply it to domestic violence, it's a terrible marker because the nature of domestic violence, even in normal domestic violence, without coercive control, but certainly in the 70 to 80% of the cases that involve coercive control, the marker of the physical violence is not severity, but it's frequency, its duration, how long it lasts, an average of 5.5 to 7 years on average, and the fact that it is having a cumulative impact on that single individual. So that what you get at point Y is everything that's happened from point A to point Y to that person, not simply what happened at X to Y, which is all the police officer is asked to observe when he's trying to assess whether a particular assault has caused injury. In other words, if I come into your house and you're complaining of an injury that's enormously serious and you're crying hysterically, and I observe a minor scratch or a bruise, I don't see A, B, C, D, E, F, all the assaults that have preceded that. I don't see the fact that he's been threatening to do what he did to you last month and maybe recorded down in some other borough, maybe in Brooklyn instead of the Bronx, which is where you are now. 
the real problem is that we don't look beyond the physical injury. Now, of course, there are serious injuries in domestic violence. There are homicides that result from domestic violence. But in most cases that I see, the severe injury is the exception, not the rule. It may come early in the relationship. It may come late. I had one case in which there were probably 200 assaults and the severest assault where he hit her with a barbell didn't occur till the end because she was actually going to leave him at that point. So when you were talking earlier about the violence within domestic violence law, and you said if someone commits you know, an act of assault right. against another person, whatever the gender, they should be arrested for that. But in the context of your calculus of harms, you know, how does someone using current domestic violence law in the United States look at a case where a victim of coercive control may have engaged in an act of violence towards her abuser and is now being prosecuted? You can't do that because we have, first of all, there is no crime of coercive control in the United States. Our shelters served millions, not just hundreds of thousands, several million women since we opened who've been sexually assaulted and who have reported their assaults to the police and who've got nothing in response, not just once, but often dozens of times. Sexual assault is not, to my mind, really a crime in this country yet because, I mean, I know it's on the books, but it's not being prosecuted. Now, the other elements, of course, control, many of them are not criminal. And they don't even become criminal until they appear in the context of coercive control. One of the first men we convicted in England was a man who made his wife run on the treadmill with the picture of one of the women from television. Her picture was on the treadmill. She had to have a butt like whoever it was. And she had to lose 500 calories a day. And he would feed her cans of tuna. And if she fell asleep, he would make her start from scratch again. He got three years in prison for that. Now, what an odd thing to do. Why would he get time? Nobody would get prison time. If a wife described that to a divorce court, they would think she was being odd, if that. And she might be considered to be alienating her children. But because of the or else proviso, because either she did it or else, either she ate the can of tuna or else, there was no violence or very little violence in that relationship. He didn't need it. He needed only the threat of violence. There had been a little violence, but it had been long gone. Certainly nothing that would have raised the eyebrows of a police officer responding to a domestic violence call. But because we had defined, you see, subordination as a crime, because we had said a person has a right to willfully reject what they are told to do without fearing the or else provider will be put in force, that man was sent to jail. So what you're describing to me is an imaginary situation. You're saying this course of control. Well, there isn't course of control in this country because it hasn't been defined as a, as a pattern of behavior. Wait, so to, just to clarify, in my scenario, 
if a woman has experienced coercive control as you've defined it, and she's engaged in an act of violence towards her abuser, right now the criminal justice system mm-hmm. has no alternative but to prosecute her. Is that correct? Well, there are some elements of coercive control. Let's be let's be clear about this. That you could prosecute it under current law. For example, if he's stalking her, you could prosecute that under current law. If he's going through a pocketbook and taking her money, I think you'd be very hard-pressed to prosecute that. If he's telling her she can't contact her friends or if she's timing her going and coming, I think you'd have a hard time prosecuting him for that. But most of the elements of coercive control, you're right are not currently criminal offenses in this country. So if I came into a situation as a police officer and I was a he said, she said, and you told me that I had to enforce a law against violence and I couldn't establish, as Connecticut has now finally said, a police officer has to do a primary aggressor in that situation as the male offender, Yes, I would have to arrest her and I would have to charge her based on what the assault law tells me is the degree of harm intended or caused, depending on the, on the criminal statute. That would be what I would say what I have to do. That's what I should do. That's what the state wants me to do. Okay, so let's turn to the law then. What can we do in this country to change our laws to be consistent with prosecuting and holding people accountable for engaging in coercive control as you've defined it? Do we need to scrap all the domestic violence laws on the books now and how they define incidental violence and crimes? Do we have to start from scratch? Yes, I wouldn't say necessarily get rid of them. In part, I think you do have to go back to scratch. I think we have to start asking ourselves some very fundamental questions. What happens, I think we should start by saying, it's very simple. If we start out with the assumption that women are equal to men, that women have the same standing as human beings as men do, and now let's put myself in a house or in a relationship and personal life, I call it. I would want dignity. So let's say anything that takes away my dignity systematically is going to be wrong. Do I want to make that a criminal offense? Maybe not. Not yet. Let's see. Now, let's talk about society. I have a right to exist in society. I want to have friends. I want to have co-workers. I want to have family relationships. So anything that cuts me off from that kind of society prevents me from establishing my identity as a political person, which I am as a woman. I am as a man. Because if I'm not a political person, I'm not a citizen. And if I'm not a citizen, I can't be a member of a state. I don't exist. I exist as a hermit. I exist alone. So do I want to make a crime out of somebody keeping me from my friends, my family? Well, we do have crimes like that, kidnapping, bondage. But how seriously we should take that? Let's put that aside, too. And we go through each of the rights and liberties that way. 
Do I have a right to money? Do I have a right to determine how I clean my house? Do I have a right to my gender role? Do I have a right to my dress myself? Do I have a right to determine the heat of my bathroom? Do I have a right? All of those little rights and liberties that are embedded in the fabric of everyday life, you're going to find when you talk to women about equality and personal life, that those are the rights that are being systematically abrogated when men make regulations about how they should live their lives. Now, if we want to make, as a community, have a discussion about that. Notice we haven't talked about race, we haven't talked about social class, because these abrogations are not being done in the name of race, and the name of social class. They're being done in the name of gender. Unfortunately, they may also be done in other names, in other places, in other ways. We have to be sensitive to that. But right now, women are being told that they should dress as they should, clean as they should, cook as they should, care for their children as they should, solely because that is the expectation of them as women because of their they are women, and because men do not believe that it's their privileged status, they are endowed with the special capacities that women have to carry out these tasks. It's not just these gender roles, but it begins there. And it extends to progress involving all aspects of everyday life. I've had cases where rules govern how how the toilet paper should be from the floor, how hot the bath water should be. I had one client who was tied to a tree in the backyard naked in the middle of winter. So she would learn what it felt like for the bath water not to be 78 degrees when he came home from work and took a bath. To teach her a lesson of what it felt like to be cold. They talk about how violence is learned. You can learn violence by watching other people. You can watch it on television. Course of control is not for dummies. Each man makes it up himself out of his own special vocabulary and knowledge and targets each woman individually. It's what's based on her special knowledge and skills of what makes her beautiful as a person, what she loves. One woman loves gardening, her gardening becomes the focus of his control. But we're finding that the same tactics that men are using with women, they are applying to children. But it's not exposure to violence. It's not witnessing violence that we're finding is harmful to children in most cases. It's the direct course of control of children as secondary victims to their parents, their mothers. And by secondary, I don't mean secondary in importance. I mean secondary only in the sense that the mother represents the main barrier to the privilege that man wants, and the child is simply in the way. Just to clarify, what you're saying is that the cases of coercive control that involve children, um, they're coexistent with coercive control of the the mother. Absolutely. Okay. Coercive control is not a, a targeted single individual, almost never. It almost always involves a spectrum of people. Even if there are no children in the household, there are going to be co-workers, family members, others whom are targeted. 
Because wherever there is a woman, there is a support system, even if it's implied. And that has to be cut apart. That has to be fragmented. And that is the targeted object of the court's control. And that should be the focus of criminal investigation as well, by the way. I know there's a roundabout answer. I, I wish I had a simple answer. Go out and get a court's control law. But I think it's more fundamental than that. It really involves a fundamental re-questioning of how we vocalize what the experiences of being abused. That we don't just talk in a vocabulary of victimization. Our experience is so fundamental, and I think that's what the early women's movement really taught me and taught us. It was rooted in women's talking about their own experience. It taught men that we could talk about our own experience, not our experience with women, but our experience as men, dropping a plumb line into our experience as men, which also included women, but fundamentally found its root of power, not in power over others, but in power and become our own kind of adults. And that that was the same power that we loved when we loved women. We loved their power to become their kind of adults. And so that is where a free society begins. It begins in loving the experience of people, whatever they are, however poor they are, however you know uneducated or lack of education they may have, wherever their power lies in their imagination and dream for themselves, they have a right to unfold that dream as they can best possibly do. And we as a society have to find a stage on which those experiences can be vocalized. So what about the European laws that you have been referencing throughout our conversation? Have they been working? I don't been working. They're being enforced. They're very new. I think what's happening, there was a show that really did it. It wasn't the law that did it. It was the archers that did it, to be honest with you. The law happened in 2013. What happened was 2013, the British government realized domestic violence law wasn't working. They were spending millions of dollars, we're spending in this country hundreds of millions of dollars, enforcing domestic violence laws. No one was going to jail. Police loads were being filled with more and more of the same cases again and again, revolving doors. And what was happening was the same women, the same men, were appearing at the police again and again and again and again. Police were coming to the house. They began to wonder, how come this woman keeps staying with this guy? They had all kinds of risk assessments in place as we do. They had all kinds of triage systems in place as we do. They used the calculus of harms. They had specialized teams. They had all kinds of ways like we do to rationalize. And still they were putting 97% of the cases were being no charges were being filed. No one was going to jail. And the men were revolving doors and creating a negative feedback loop was being created. But police were getting more and more depressed, just like we're doing in New York. And so there were only two alternatives. 
One was to up the ante and the other was to down the ante. What New York is trying to do now, and one of the reasons it's so scary in New York, is they're running from domestic violence and they're doing it in the name of racism, which is so funny because, of course, Americans are racist justice system. Everybody knows that. It's a racialist justice system, or else should know it. It incarcerates men of color at many times the rate of other people. But it doesn't incarcerate men for coercive and controlling women's liberties. It incarcerates men of color for drug crimes primarily. And not just for drug crimes, but for violent crimes related to drug crimes. Everybody knows that. So instead of getting rid of the drug incarcerations and putting people in jail for depriving people of their democratic rights and liberties, protecting women of color, protecting men of color, protecting women of all colors, instead of making the justice system more just, we want to make the prison system more empty. Let's dump the system on the social work system, which can't deal with liberties and was never meant to deal with liberties. It's meant to deal with poverty. And New York took the out because it, there was no movement strong enough. In Europe, the police would have done that. They would have loved to have done the whole problem back in the men's movement. Oh, you can treat these men. Let's send them all straight in the women movement. Women's movement rose as one and said, no, we won't do that. Now, we were lucky in England. The Tories were in power. They had made so many draconian social service cuts. They were fearful they were going to lose the election, and particularly they were going to lose women's votes. And so they made room for a woman, Theresa May, who is now prime minister, but in those days was home secretary, who happened to be a champion of women's rights. And Theresa May stood up and said, I'm for justice for women. I want to see the police get involved in this in a really meaningful way. Here's a law where they can do it. Here's a court control law. And she gave it to them. But the law didn't mean anything. It didn't change anything. So what I hear you saying, if I may summarize, is that not only should we revisit our laws and policies, but we should also focus on changing the cultural dialogue and making sure that people have the same vocabulary and values about what we value and what we want to consider criminal and not. I think there's no question that without reaching into the mass cultural arena, you can't touch everyday life with this message. The law alone is not going to do it. That's the first message. The second point is you cannot distinguish the justice agenda for women from the equality agenda for women. You can't say we can have one law that allows women to get paid what really is, in effect, 40% for every dollar that men make, or 30 cents for every dollar. Because if you look at the actual research, not the 70 cents research, which looks only at women and men who've been employed full-time for the last previous how many months, but looks at all women in wage earning 
years and all men in those same wage earning years and looks at all the earnings that they've had in their most lucrative work years and all the earnings that women have had during those work years and compares those, you'll see the differences are enough to explain enormous differences in power between the sexes. So we're talking about a major adjustment. We're talking about companies in Europe now which are committed to publishing, the, even the BBC is now being committed to this, the differences in wages that women and men are getting, who is being promoted and who is not. So we're talking about systemic differences in power. So yes, of course, we have to change the law along the way. We're not going to wait for justice. But you can't expect that you're going to have justice in personal life until you have the equality in social life. So economic justice is a requirement, in other words. Absolutely. Okay. And full substantive equality, not formal equality, not just laws, but real changes in practice. Now, we're not headed that way right now in America, but we certainly have at the local level the capacity to make enormous changes in the lives of men and women in our cities, and the mayor's attempting to do this in New York, and other people are attempting to do this in other cities and states. And I think these opportunities require a parallel and simultaneous commitment to have women free in their homes. You can't have an agenda for sexual equality in one division of city government and have a Another division of city government say we're not going to allow justice in women's personal lives because of some racial bias that we have in the prison system. You know, you can't have that. That kind of imbalance and equality, we will not stand for that. Is a part of the solution also ratifying the ERA and having the U.S. join CEDAW, the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women? I haven't thought enough about either of those issues. I'll just say what I think. I have always supported the ERA. I think the ERA is very important. But I don't think the ERA should have to be in the Constitution. I think the ERA should be the Constitution. But insofar as it's not, I think the Turkish Constitution has equality for women written into it. So I think there are many constitutions that have equality for women written into it, but there is not, in fact, equality. But I think it symbolizes the level at which equality discussions take place. And I want to say that same thing is true, unfortunately, unfortunately about CEDAW. When Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State, I worked in Turkey, I worked in Taiwan, I worked in... Um, other areas of the world, conflict areas where there was where there was fighting, in the Baltic regions and in elsewhere. And in each of those areas, there was a very clear divide between human rights constituencies, who were very liberal, very feminist, and they had a very important horizontal focus. That is, their focus was the international community, the UN, the world community, international law, human rights discourse. And that's a very important conversation 
because the fact that I know that there's even as an individual peasant or a housewife living in Izmir or living in on the Turkish-Syrian border, that I know that I have a human right, not just a woman's right, is a very important part of my conversation. At the same time, there are local constituencies of women. When I work in the Dana, which is a religious center in Turkey, the groups that I work with there, or I work with there, are not international human rights lawyers. They are groups of local imams, muftis, Quran scholars. When we sit down to talk about abuse, we're talking about our everyday lives. We're talking about their everyday lives. We're not talking about human rights. We're not talking about Sidor. We're talking about this woman in this household, this prison, this radio station, this newspaper, you know, this campaign we're talking about today. We're talking about religious women coming to a justice center in Istanbul and talking to a Quran scholar or talking to a, an imam who is willing to listen to a story about abuse and not push her back into the relationship. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that it's, a, it's not that I'm against the Seedwell Conventions. I think it's fabulous. It's done an amazing amount to set the context in which a conversation can begin about coercive control. But unless the conversation is rooted, unless women realize that, sure, you could access the government assembly because the government doesn't have democratic roots. So either you can concentrate all of your energy as a human resource rights groups. When I go to Izmir, I'm greeted by a band comes and plays for me. The police come and dance. The human rights groups sing and dance. We have a justice center there, which is set up with American imitation models, you know, and everything, and it's all celebrated in this symbol. But there's no such groups in most of the countryside. In the countryside, they depend on peasant theater groups. Well, I mean, for the U.S., I think, wouldn't you say that there's value in having the symbolism of us being a part of that convention because we're only one of a handful of countries in the world who hasn't signed on? So that, Yes, you know, but is, it doesn't mean that all but a handful of countries have actually given women right. justice. Right. And so I'm saying, yes, we should make our effort that way. But the point is that when we have our eyes up, then that also becomes where our palms are. Right. And if we want to have our palms where they should be on our legs and doing our work, and all the, at least that's why I have to keep mine these days to keep my feet moving, I want to keep my eyes down. So to a certain level, I want to keep our eyes on the prize, and the prize is in women's experience. That's where I believe my work has to be done. And I'm not saying... And I'm in favor of the law. I meet with policymakers in Europe. I think it's a very important thing. We should sign on to CEDAW. You know, we should sign all the right conventions against torture. You know, it's a, it's a disgrace of the world. But the real disgrace of the world is in everyday life. It, because we are such a rich country. We have so many freedoms and so many equalities around us that our capacity for change is so much greater than anywhere else in the world because we have the tools to make ourselves a, a better life 
degree. It's not that this is just about rights. It's about fundamental personhood and who we are. Rights are things that can be legally taken away or given to us, or at least that's the way they're presented at the time. This is not about things that are given to us. That's a great way for us to come to a close for our conversation. <laughs> so in the uh, spirit of James Lipton's Inside the Actor's Studio questionnaire, I've created an engendered questionnaire for all of our guests to complete our conversation. A series of three questions. The first is, what is at stake in this struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? Everything. I mean, I think everything. Because... You know, when you're talking about climate, when you're talking about when you're talking about everything, you're talking about people's ability to voice what it is that they want for themselves in their future. And that's what this is about. This is about voice. It's about voice, and then it's about choice. The second question I think you may have answered already. What gives you hope? Well, some days I have more than others. <laughs> Yesterday I got hope from the boat in Ireland. Um, what gives me hope is that wherever I go, and, and this is, was not always true, when we started out in this work and we would tell doctors, for example, what we had found with the bad women in our practice and would tell them or I would and my research and Anne from her medical experience and photographed my wife. And there would be a sign of recognition. And it was true that when we opened the first shelters, women came in droves. They have whenever we built bridges that were women-friendly. And they were very grateful for the safe space that we created. But what I have found now when I speak to crowds now with the crowds of police. Sometimes we fill football stadiums and we don't fill them just with women's groups. We fill them with police. We fill them with judges. We fill them with right-minded people wanting to do good. There's a sense of recognition of right that really wounds my heart. And I feel like, you know, I don't know if I've, maybe I hit on something with this crazy stuff. But, you know, I, I feel that there's a sense it, that gives me hope. And I, I've always been a person of hope. I, because if you don't have hope, I mean, what is there to have? Why do this work? I believe in people. I believe in capacity. Okay. And the final question, this is addressed to our listeners. What can we do more of, less of, start or stop? Well, I think what you can do more of is voicing what it is that you want to be as a free person and identifying those points in your everyday life where that has been blocked and asking yourself, what does that put me in touch with? in terms of what I have in common with my sisters and my brothers and my children and with others, and what can I do to free that up? What do I want for myself that will make me into my own kind of adult? And to what extent do I share that with others? Those things I share, those are troubles. And those are the troubles I want to address. 
And those things that I have only in myself, those are not troubles, those are ailments. <laughs> I complain about them at the gym. So I think what you can do more of is identifying what are really troubles, those what are really things, problems that you can address, and getting out there and addressing them. And I think there's nothing too little in terms of what people want, I have learned, that you can't touch a person's moment of freedom. There's no desire, no, no want that's too small, too trivial, that it doesn't somehow blossom into something that's much bigger. I know it sounds strange to say that you go from the micro to the macro, but it's amazing to me what little things people's hopes and dreams turn on. Little to me, things that I take for granted and have since childhood, I find a person who grew up in a tenement, maybe three blocks from the tenement that I grew up in, has been still fighting for all his life and still waiting for the, that dream to come in. And by reaching out and touching that little thing, I, it sets up an avalanche. And I think, you know, talk truth to power. Whenever you get a chance, power will talk back. And so find safety in numbers. Find somebody else who talks truth to power. You don't have to be a lot of numbers. That's something we've learned. And I think write down what you think. But don't get lost in yourself. Remember there's social space and real social space. And it's showing up in real social space, in real social time, has real social consequences. And I think hold people accountable, even if you're wrong. Sometimes it's right to be wrong. Thank you so much, Evan. Thank you for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It. The mission of Can Do It is to connect human service providers with the resources they need to empower their clients to be safe, healthy, housed, educated, employed, advised, and secure. Can Do It helps to bridge the service gap and can be found at kanduit.com. Can Do It. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions. Until next time, I'm your host, Terry Yuan. Thank you.